Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Oh, I love this chapter. Uh, who, uh, how can you not love it? Who doesn't love chapter 2 of Acts? Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? <clears throat> then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. That's his opening line in his sermon. Here's the closing line in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Pray with me. Father, thank you for this passage and this powerful sermon that Peter preached that day or you preached through Peter. We ask and pray for the same kind of day, the same kind of response, the same spirit in, in power in this room, in our lives, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Today we continue with our series entitled, Acts, 30 Years That Changed the World. Last week was our first uh, lesson or sermon in that. And we looked at chapter one, where the resurrected Jesus gave some directives, some final directives to his disciples before he ascended into heaven through the clouds. And one of the directives was, I want you to stay right here. Don't go anywhere. Stay here in Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is what they're doing. I don't know if they fully understand what that means or what's going to happen. I don't think they have any idea what's going to happen. But they do know the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them, and they've been instructed by Jesus to stay there and wait. It has all, at this time, uh, uh, that we see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, what we just read, it's been two, less than two months after the ascension of Jesus. In fact, it's been 50 days. It is the day of Pentecost, and we know it's been 50 days because Jesus was crucified during the Passover, and the word pente for Pentecost means 50. And so it's been exactly 50 days afterward where the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, the apostles and all who were in the church, 120 people at that point. So that's what Pentecost was, by the way. It was another uh, a festival, uh, an important time of the year, uh, every year for the Jewish people. It was also referred to as the Festival of Weeks, and it was a culmination of the Festival of First Fruits. Uh, for the apostles and for the church, I can tell you that it was an amazing day. Unlike any day they've ever had in their life. Verse 41 shares with us the results of his sermon. And you may know verse 41 well. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So whatever is about to happen, the church is going to grow from 120 to 3,000 in just a few hours. From 120 to 3,000 in just a few hours. At the end of the day, the church of Jesus Christ, the, the, the kingdom of God's people on earth, the amount of Christians are going to be just over 3,000. From these 3,000 converts come 3 million and then 300 million 
and then three billion. To date, most uh, guesstimates are that the total amount of Christians, I had to look this up, I didn't know, the total amount of Christians that have existed since the resurrection of Christ until today is somewhere between 10 to 15 billion people. It's a lot of Christians. And it all started with this 3,000. So it's quite a day, amen? Now, whatever happened that day, I just, all I ask is that happens today. <laughs> I don't think that's too much to ask, right? I hope what happened then happens today. And I don't, I'm not talking about 3,000 people. I'm talking about what caused the church to grow so beautifully and powerfully on that day. Also, this just a fun fact, looked up, do you know how many Christians there are right now that are alive today? Those who profess to be Christians? Well, I've got a pie chart for you. How about that? Um, I don't do a lot of pie charts. It makes it look like a PowerPoint presentation and I can't stand that. But um, so don't fall asleep. It's the only chart I have. You see, Christianity is here in the blue. Uh, by the way, the number one religion in the world is still Christianity with 2.4 billion people, 1.8 billion Islam, seculars, uh, secular atheists or non-religious, 1.2 billion, Hinduism 1.15, and Buddhism 100, uh, 521 million. And so there, there it is sliced up even to this day. And I, as a pastor, uh, you know, we're, we're doomsdayer guys, you know, na negative Nancy type of people. Sorry, Nancy, wherever you are. <laughs> Just a term. But we say everything's terrible, it's all bad, nobody wants to be a Christian anymore, nobody wants to go to church anymore. Statistically, that's not true. In fact, I think that in, uh, there are more Christians now than there have ever been. Because, in part, because there are more people now than there have ever been. But all, all of the seven point something billion people in our world have the same problem. They have the same condition. And that is they're all sinners and they need a savior. And so they all have the same need. And I've told you, I believe that as you and I are born, we're not born clean slates. We know this because we at least know that we have an instinct. The instinct to reproduce. The instinct to care for our young. The instinct to eat. Did you know that, and we, the instinct to stop eating when we get full. Now, we, we've struggled with that instinct, but we have certain instincts. We're pre-programmed for certain things in this life. We're not a blank slate. We're born knowing, hey, we need food. Where's mama? We are born with this instinct to care for our young and to procreate so that we continue the species we're made that way. It's, it's, it's in the blueprint. It's in our DNA. And I don't get that. I can't explain that. But there are at least some things in our DNA. And I've told you before, I believe that we're born with just in our DNA to be a musical species. You know, you don't, you don't see other animals creating instruments and playing trumpets and having orchestras. We are just musical, and I've told you this before many times, but if you get three people together in any native tribe, in any place in the world, if, if you study the, the, the beginnings of mankind, uh, just the simplest group of people, they'll do two things. They'll start making music, and they'll start worshiping something. I'm not aware of any naturally developing atheist societies ever. 
we're just musical people and we like to worship. We don't even know why, and a lot of people don't even know who to worship. So they just start worshiping anything, the sun, the moon, whatever. They'll see a stump and they'll start to worship it. And it's, it's funny, but that's what we do. We make music and we worship. My theory, Dr. Lee, which I'm not a doctor, and I don't know what I'm talking about, but I do believe it's baked in our DNA. I also believe our need, as a part of that, our need for God is baked in our DNA. We are designed to need our creator, to long for our creator. And you only find that through Christ. Okay, I, I uh, departed just a little bit there. Um, uh, so 3,000 were added on that day. And it all began with Peter's message. And by the way, that's a good sermon. You know, 3,000 people get saved in any one sermon. That's a good sermon, amen? So I really would appreciate it if all of you would repent today. And... <laughs> but that sermon was only 21 verses long. Amen? That's a good sermon. That's not going to happen. Sorry. 21 verses that changed the world. 21 verses that made all the difference in all of history. 21 verses. Now, earlier this year in February, I preached from Acts chapter 2, a lesson about faith and the Holy Spirit. If you work here for that message, I'm not going to re-preach it today. Uh, you can go to our website and go back to February and find that message. I shared that it was uh, an indwelling faith because the Holy Spirit indwelled them, was indwelling in them. A saving faith because they got saved and a multiplying faith. That was talking about the first 120, the apostles and the, the inner core of those who followed Jesus to the very end and saw him after the resurrection. That 120, they're there. They're the ones that are receiving the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost. They're the ones that everybody sees and hears from and it's why they are converting in the number of 3,000. As we look at these 21 verses today, keep into mind that the church had consisted, again, initially of 120 members and that they have received the Holy Spirit. And there are four things that happened that caused us to know that they received the Holy Spirit. I think I told you this last time. This was really necessary. When you say, well, I received the Holy Spirit. There's no, there's no flame over my head. Uh, why, why don't I get a flame? Well, there's no here here that says this is prescriptive and will happen to every people who received every person who receives the Holy Spirit for all time. It was necessary then because they they didn't really have a full understanding of what the Holy Spirit was. What is what that even mean? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so you didn't have two apostles looking at each other and one says to the other, "I think I received the Holy Spirit. Did you receive it?" Well, I, I think I did. Uh, maybe maybe I did. How can I tell? Well, there was no discussion and no debate. They all knew they received the Holy Spirit because there were four things that gave an indication of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it all began with number one, and that was a sound. In fact, this is easy to overlook, but there was a sound, chapter two tells us, like rushing waters or the sound of a mighty wind, it says. And this sound was so profound that people came running, at least 3,000 of them, because there was nobody there with the apostles when they received the Holy Spirit. Just that 120 people group, that, that core group, they received the Holy Spirit and there's nobody else there. 
And within minutes, there's at least 3,000, if not thousands more that came to see what was going on. And they came to see what was going on because everybody heard this powerful sound. I don't really know exactly how it sounded or what it was. They just simply say it was like a mighty wind. But whatever it was, it was substantial enough that people felt compelled to go find out what created that sound. The second thing that we see is there was something glowing and bright that appeared above their heads. For this 120, when they received the Holy Spirit, the Bible describes it as a tongue of fire. Now, I still don't know exactly what that means, but there was glowing going on. You could look over at Peter and there's something on his head and all the other 120, they could see each other. They didn't have to ask because they just see it. So they heard it and they saw it. And number three, they began to prophesy. Now, I love this part. Of the, of the, by the way, there are 12 disciples that are now apostles. There were 12 and then there were 11. And then in chapter one, I didn't have time to get to this last week. They replaced Judas with the guy named Matthias. And so he was there and now they have 12 apostles. But they all start prophesying. Now, among the 12 apostles, how many of them were preachers? Zero, not one. Peter was a fisherman. He didn't know anything about speaking in public. He was completely unschooled. In fact, all of these guys were, except maybe for Matthew, and he was a tax collector. And I assure you, nobody ever wanted to hear what he had to say. And so these are rookies. They don't know how to speak in public. Peter is preaching his first sermon, and he's preaching it in front of 3,000 people. That's going to be intimidating, but not to Peter, because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, all of them start prophesying. And the fourth thing that we see is, amazingly, remarkably, even though they're prophesying in their own language, it's being translated by the Holy Spirit into the native language that, of everybody that was there. So what had happened because Pentecost was a famous festival, Jews and those who wanted to convert to Judaism called God-fearers were there by the thousands and they had come from all over, nations all over the known world to Israel, to, to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, uh, Pentecost. And so some of them didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't speak Aramaic. They didn't speak the language. And yet they, they hear the sound, they come rushing, and the first thing they hear is the apostles prophesying, preaching, and they can understand it in their language remarkably. By the way, you have to notice at the Tower of Babel, way back in Genesis chapter 11, because God judged his people because out of arrogance they built this tower to try to be as tall or high as God in the heavens. So God caused a scrambling of the languages and scattered all the people throughout the earth. And at this moment, on the day of Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, it is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Instead of one language and, and is scattered into many languages so that nobody can understand each other, here you have many people in many languages and now everyone can understand because of the Holy Spirit. So I want to look at just a few things that Peter did or said in his message that made all the difference in the history of the world. Number one, Peter begins by telling them what. We're going to look at the what and the who and the why, but we're, we want to begin with the what. 
That is what was happening. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was a fulfillment of that what? Of that that was happening. Acts chapter 2, verse 15. Let's look at the beginning of the sermon. He starts off like this. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, let me stop right there. <laughs> People come running. They don't know what's going on. And you and I know that these tongues of fire and uh, prophesying and uh, the, the, the power to prophesy and then hearing it in their own language. And uh, there's a lot going on. The, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. People have not seen this before. And so they, they saw what was going on and, and they just thought, hey, I don't know what this is. Maybe they're drunk. And Peter says, no, no, they're not drunk. <laughs> and he doesn't say, we don't drink or we never get drunk. What does he say? It's, it's not in the morning. Yeah, it's too early to get drunk. Now, that doesn't mean they were drunks. <laughs> it simply means... You guys understand, you see drunks all the time. Back then, people drank because they didn't have Dr. Pepper and Red Bull or whatever you drink. I don't know, iced tea, amen. <laughs> they didn't have that. They had water, which often was not available and was not clean, and they had wine, so everybody drank wine. And the drinking typically happened in excess after work. Everybody had to go to work, and so you had to be sober for work. And if you were drunk for work, you didn't work for very long, you didn't make any money, and you couldn't buy anything to drink or eat. And so it happened at night. People drank only at night. That's not necessarily the case here in the 21st century. I think I've told you before that I was going up I-35 on the way to Sanger above Denton where my brother lives uh, a few years ago. And uh, there was a guy in a pickup just swerving all over the road. And he would speed up and slow down. So I did what you're supposed to do, of course. I just hit the pedal and, <laughs> and took off because I didn't want to be around that drunk guy because he was going through all the lanes. And so I'm driving along at a pretty good clip, not enough to get stopped because I passed a police officer. And actually, I've never done this. I pulled over and told the police officer, hey, there's a guy. And it was like 9 or 10 in the morning. There's a guy who's drunk behind me. He's all over the interstate. And he said, okay, why don't you follow me? I'll follow him, you follow me. And uh, um, as a witness or something, I don't know. But I got to follow the police uh, officer as he's chasing this guy down. So I got to, I got to speed legally. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> and so he, sure enough, he stopped the guy and his, his blood alcohol was like crazy. You know, he was just super, super drunk. And the officer came back and he was very appreciative and he thanked me for, for having reported it because I didn't want him to hurt himself or hurt anybody else. And, and I said to the officer, how could he be this drunk this early in the day? He said, well, it's early in the day for you. It's, it's last night for him. He'd been drinking all night. He's just now going home. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's a terrible way to live. And so Peter explains to them, no, well, they didn't have drunk drivers unless it was on a camel or something. But <laughs> he says, only nine in the morning. We're not drunk. It's something else. He says in verse 16, no, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out, listen to this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. 
not just your sons, your daughters will prophesy. We'll get to that in a minute and see what he says. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ooh, that's a good introduction, isn't it? That's powerful. He, has, he says a lot there and I don't have time to go through all of it. But... Um, but you do notice a couple of things. He says, first of all, I will pour out my spirit. That's Pentecost. That's the coming of the Holy Spirit on God's people. And he says, all people. Now, all people, he doesn't mean every person that is in existence. What he does mean is more than just people in Jerusalem or in Israel. Because until that Day, In fact, even in the minds of the disciples, they believed salvation through Christ was basically something for Jews. Jesus has told them differently, but they still haven't wrapped their head around the fact that salvation is global. It is universal. It's not just local. And this prophecy way back in the Old Testament from the prophet Joel predicts that. That there will come a day, and he's reminding them, you guys know this, you've read this. He says, remember the prophet Joel. He says, one day in that prophecy, God says, I will pour out my spirit on people all over the place. And who's there listening to the sermon? People from all over the place. And they realize, oh, that's me. Something's different now. And then he says that People will prophesy, both men and women. Now, he's not talking about a, a role as a senior pastor. That's a completely different thing. But he is saying God's spirit will speak through people who give their life to Christ, who believe. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. And while we don't have women preachers in the Southern Baptist Convention... I believe that the Spirit of God speaks through women just as much as it speaks through men. And that's radical. This is radical stuff that's being preached here. And then he goes on to say again in just the next verse, he said, On my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit. You see, there was this uh, hierarchy in Jewish theology where men were, were closer to God than women. And even the temple, if you go into the temple courts, there's the court of women. The women could go there, but they couldn't go past that into the court of men. And then even closer to the, 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 close, the closer you got, the more segregated it was to men. There were no women priests. They never went in. No woman ever went into the temple. Ever. There were certainly no women high priests either. So no woman ever stepped in and saw the table of showbread or the, the, uh, the curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. No woman ever saw the Ark of the Covenant in the temple because they weren't permitted in there. But here God is saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on men and women. Those people out in our culture who claim that the Bible 
is chauvinistic against women haven't read the Bible. Now, again, there are different roles, and that's another sermon, and I'm happy to share that with you. There are different roles how, how we serve in the church and how we see in the New Testament and what is taught. But as far as God and his spirit using you for a mighty way, ladies, don't ever sit there and think, well, I'm just a woman, God won't use me. And so he makes this great prophecy here or shares this prophecy has now been fulfilled in Christ. And that's the reason for their strange behavior that day. Next, we see that Peter tells them not just the what, but the why. Why? Well, let's look at the sermon. And this is the rest of the sermon, the rest of the 21 verses. He says this, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. See, this is not years later. This is weeks later. A lot of these people out there were in Jerusalem or in the area. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They witnessed that themselves. They heard the teachings of Jesus. They know exactly who he's talking about. He says, as you well know. And then he says in verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said, and so here now he quotes David. David said about him in verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One See decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then Peter says, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. In other words, he's saying David wasn't talking about himself because he did die. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke to the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to, the, to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to, to your feet. Now, Peter clearly tells them the who of the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? Verse 36, he makes this declaration, the very next verse. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
There's the term. And this is the turning point for this message. This is the application. This is the call to them that God has made this Christ, uh, this man, Jesus, Lord and Christ. He's the Messiah, but he's also God incarnate, the Son of God, Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Notice what they didn't do. They didn't say, nah, those miracles weren't that great. I saw three of them. It was okay. They didn't say that. They didn't say, ah, what he had to say wasn't that great. They didn't say, oh, I don't think he really died. I think he was just wounded. They didn't say that. They knew Roman crucifixions never produced, produced wounded people. They all understood that Jesus died. And I get the impression that many of them have heard the reports from the 120. And there were more than that actually saw Jesus alive. He, he appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. And they probably have heard. You don't, you don't see somebody resurrected from the dead and keep that quiet. So the Holy Spirit has been preparing them for this moment as only God can do. And so immediately they respond. What, what do we need to do? So he tells them who... Um, I, I can't help but to notice the phrase, they were cut to the heart. Look with me uh, um, in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. It doesn't say they were curious or they were suspicious or they were open-minded. It says they were cut to the heart. Something deep inside of them was Torn when they heard this, they realized suddenly all the pieces came together and the Spirit just convicted them that they are sinful people and they allowed this to happen and they know that Jesus died on the cross. They know he did miraculous signs that only God can do. And now they realize, oh my goodness, I need a Savior. What do we do? And so they're under conviction. They were cut to the heart. Being cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit leads to real change, not just pretend change. And there are many people in our world, I don't know where they are on the chart, but I can say that there are no doubt people in this world that say they are Christians, but they have not been cut to the heart. It has just been a mental thing or something that they claim. If you've been cut to the heart, the Holy Spirit has convicted you and you have surrendered your life to Christ, there will be real change in your life. Not just pretend change. I heard the story about a little nine-year-old girl who came home from vacation Bible school, proudly told her mom and dad that she said, Jesus is living in my heart now. Mom and dad were so proud and made a big deal out of it. Later that day, her little brother said something that she didn't like, so she just doubled up her fist and punched him in the face as hard as she could. Well, he was shocked about that. He wasn't a theologian, but he knew that Christians shouldn't act like that. He said, I thought you said Jesus was living in your heart. She said, yeah, but he's asleep now. <laughs> well, the change that happened on the day of Pentecost was real change. And then Peter tells them how. He gives them the how. How to respond to Christ. What do, what do we do, they ask. Which is what every preacher wants to hear, by the way. Pastor, what do we do? Well, funny, you should ask. 
Peter was very direct to them. He told them to repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that famous verse. Peter replied, repent. That means turn from your sins. Confess your sins to God and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we also see that they were devoted to their faith in verse 42, just verse or two later, it says this. This is what happened after that day. It doesn't say they went home and they forgot all about it. And, you know, the 3,000 people just drifted away. What it does say is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with what? They were filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone as he had need. So here's what happened as a result. They became devoted to the faith. They were filled with awe because God was moving among them. Three, they were unified. And four, they were generous. Now on that fourth one, that's interesting that it, he includes that. It makes you more generous. You always, there's no such thing, there shouldn't be no such thing as a stingy Christian. Do you remember when Jesus went to see Zacchaeus? And it's not tithing sermon, I'm talking about generally, I mean, just being generous. Cherry and I went and ate out uh, this weekend at a local restaurant, and there, were, uh, there was a couple from our church there. I didn't even see them or know that they were there. And, uh, but I know now because I went to try to pay and they had already paid. Uh, thank you, by the way, whoever that was. They were being generous. When Jesus went to see Zacchaeus and salvation came to his house that day, it changed his life. He was cut to the quick. He was cut to the heart. And Zacchaeus had a tremendous change from the outside, uh, from the inside out. And immediately, without even Jesus saying, you need to do this, do this, he immediately said, on his own, half of everything I have, I give to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, and he had, I'll pay it back. What would you say? Three times over or something like that? Twice over? He said, I'll take care of it. I'll pay it back. I'm going to make it right. He didn't care about money anymore. He was suddenly generous. But notice what else it says here. It says they were, they, they, they were generous, gave to anybody as they had need. But I find this interesting in verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe. Are you filled with awe? That's a rhetorical question. I, I don't want to hear you say it. I want you to be honest with yourself. As a believer in Christ today, are you filled with awe? If the Holy Spirit is manifesting itself in your life, you will be filled with awe. If God is moving in this church the way that God desires to move in this church, we will be filled with awe. And if you are not filled with awe in your relationship with God, something's wrong with your relationship with God. And you may need to do what they did. Repent of your sins. Surrender yourself to Christ. Let me tell you, this is what our world does now. Because I told you, we are designed to need God. We are designed to need Christ. 
But we don't want to do that. We don't want to repent of our sins. We don't want to surrender ourselves to him or anybody else. So we find substitutes for Jesus. We find substitutes for the Holy Spirit. In fact, we've gotten pretty good at it. This world provides all kinds of substitutes. And frankly, our most popular substitute now was the popular substitute then. And all of our technology and all the things that we have today, the, the, the root, the, the root substitute and the core lie that we have is the same one that they had then. That is, they believed that they could do good works. I don't need Jesus. I'll just do something good. I'll do good things. That was the core of the Jewish beliefs at the time. And today it was what we call a works-based salvation. But if works-based salvation actually worked, then we wouldn't need Christ. If works-based salvation worked, we could be atheists as long as we do enough good things and that emptiness in our life will be filled and we won't need God or any of that stuff. But it doesn't work. The Bible says the result of our sin is death. And we can't undo that in and of ourselves. We, we can't do enough good works to make that happen. There are so many substitutes for Christ today. And they're all a lie. If someone is convicted of a crime where somebody else is harmed, they can do community service, they can do a lot of good works, but what they can't do is undo the crime. Only Christ can truly forgive. Once there was a man who was known for his energy drinks. He liked to make all kinds of energy drinks. This is back before energy drinks were so popular in our convenience stores. And he actually made an energy drink. It was famous, at least in his circle. He made it with orange juice. He would take uh, orange juice and, and pour it into a, a blender. And then he would take uh, a banana and put that in. And then he would take a, um, a cream substance, a secret ingredient, and put that in. And then he would blend that all together with several ice cubes and make this concoction and everybody raved on it. One day a man came and wanted to taste his energy drink, all natural energy drink. And so the guy went to make the energy drink for him and he, he discovered that he was out of orange juice. We found some grape juice in the fridge and saw, so he thought, well, I'll just make the same thing, but I'll use grape juice. So he blended it all up. It looked really good. It was all purple. Handed it to the guy, and the guy took a sip, and he didn't say anything one way or another, but he sipped it again, sipped it again, and he finally drank the whole thing. But before he left, the, 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 the energy drink guy noticed his friend was not looking too good, and he kept getting sicker and sicker, and within a few minutes, he was as purple as that juice was, and he learned this important lesson about making energy drinks. Some things you just can't substitute. It's like if you're in your car and you run out of gas, but you've got a couple of gallons of water and it's liquidy like gasoline, you just pour that right in your tank. You're gonna learn that there's no substitute for gasoline. That famous meme that you probably have seen online, this poor dear lady is in a, I think it's a Tesla, it's an electric car and she runs out of battery power and she's at a filling station, true story. She's at the pump with a, with a nozzle in her hand and she's looking at her car trying to figure out where to put it. It won't work. 
There are some things in life you cannot substitute. And you cannot substitute anything for Jesus Christ. He is the only Messiah. He is the only Son of God. He's the only one that can redeem us and forgive us of our sins. He's the only one that can bring us back into a place in life where we can connect with our Father in heaven, which we are designed to do. No one else can save us. No one else can redeem us. It is Christ alone. That's what Peter said. And that's why it's changed the world. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today. We acknowledge that there are so many false remedies for our need found only in Christ. We try to fill that emptiness in our life in so many ways, with so many things. But it doesn't work. We wake up one day and realize we are empty and something is terribly wrong. Something is missing in our life. And only Christ can fill. We thank you and praise you for the beginning of the church that day as we see 3,000 turn into 10 to 14 billion people. More than 2 billion people right now in this world profess to be Christians. We thank you for the power of your kingdom that this secular world cannot overcome it. The secular governments cannot outvote it. That the temptations of this world cannot overcome it. That fundamental truth in life that we are created by you and for you. And that you are a moral God and you have every right to have expectations of your people. You created us to have a relationship with you, but that doesn't work because of the sin in our life. It separates us. But that you love us and don't want us to be separated, so you sent Jesus to die for us in our place on the cross to give us forgiveness, hope, redemption, eternity. Father, I pray right now that the same thing would happen here, that we would be cut to the heart, knowing our need for Christ, that we're cut to the heart because we know we are unworthy of you, that we're cut to the heart because we know we are not living the way you want us to live. And I pray today would be the day of our salvation alone. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you this morning? Is the Spirit speaking to you? Is God's Spirit speaking to you? Are you cut to the heart today? This can be the moment of your salvation. I challenge you, just come up and say, here in a moment, in a time of invitation, no one's looking around. They're all going to be praying. You can just quietly come up and say, Pastor, I want to surrender myself to Christ. I know what that emptiness is and I need it to be filled in Christ. 
Would you do that today? Maybe you just want to come and kneel and pray for someone or spend this time thanking you for the Holy Spirit that is in your life, in your heart right now if you're a believer in Christ. And I pray for power in this place and in your hearts for the glory of God. Would you stand? No one's looking around. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed. And as you stand, as you pray right now, this invitation is for you. This opportunity is for you. As we pray, you come.